Well, it's uh, two weeks. We'll know this evening uh, who the players will be in the Super Bowl. It's a big game. It's about the only game that I watch. Um, it's really about the only game I've deemed worth watching is that one game. And uh, when the Super Bowl is played in a couple of weeks, I over what, tw- uh, almost 30 years of ministry, 28, 29, 29 years of ministry, it's been interesting to read uh, ever since uh, Twitter and Facebook and those things to kind of follow along the game on that social network um, uh, formats and to, to see every now and then there's a prayer that's uttered by somebody. You know, please God, make him catch this. Something like that. Uh, I'm convinced that God will be involved in the Super Bowl, and that's a, you um, uh, might think in a Presbyterian denomination in a church that, that as a given, but it's a pretty good theological truth. Uh, we as good Presbyterians know that and that God will be involved in that Super Bowl. God is involved in every uh, bit of our life, and God's sovereign to all of that. That's God's sovereignty. Uh, if God is involved in the minutia of our life, our everyday stuff that goes on, certainly God would be involved in the Super Bowl, you would think. And uh, after a, there was a poll that was taken uh, a couple of years ago, that, uh, and then it was found out that it was an estimated 50% of the uh, folks who were polled um, uh, agree with that, that God is somehow uh, in, involved in that because they ask these questions um, that, if, um, that if there was a last-minute run, a last-minute punt, a last-minute kick uh, or pass, uh, not a punt, but a pass, a last-minute kick for the win, would you say a prayer? And 50% of the people said, yes. I would be praying, and so you have to wonder, um, they didn't ask what it would be praying for, but I can imagine that half of them are going to be praying that, that it would be caught, dropped, intercepted, fumbled, or missed, and the other half probably didn't care at all. One of those things is going to happen, right? At the last minute, a Hail Mary or something is going to happen at the end of the game, and it's amazing to me that those 50% believe that God has these supernatural powers over 330-pound linemen and veteran quarterbacks and a placeholder or the center who's snapping the ball or the fastest lightning defensive end who's out there guarding. Now, My theology says that God is involved in that football game and NCAA basketball finals, which I will watch and watch all of those. But there are times when I wonder how much Jesus really knows and cares about tackle football. I enjoy it. It's a good game. But I believe that there's a better way of life than to worry about who's going to win the football game. There's a better way of living for a day than to anxiously worry if they're going to kick it right, if it's going to go left or right, or the pass receiver is going to catch it, or the the running back is actually going to plunge over the goal line for the win. When you read these beatitudes, these lessons from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, this opening season of the words of the Sermon on the Mount, you can see that Jesus' values are light years away from the power and the finesse and the athleticism that football teams have to have to win Super Bowl games. Beatitudes, these blessings, these pithy sayings, 
ring true in particular circumstances. They always have, and this isn't the only little set of Beatitudes that's in the world. Benjamin Franklin wrote some Beatitudes, a good many of them, and there's some one-liners like, failing to prepare leads to preparing to fail. An investment in knowledge pays the best interest, he said. And then my favorite is, there are three faithful friends an old dog, which I have one, an old wife, no comment, and ready money, which I have none. One afternoon, Jesus and these followers were out in the fields and the sides of the hills, and he decides to tell them after he looks at this crowd and they're following and he can kind of perceive what they think he needs to be they can kind of, he begins to tell them what his plan is to change the world. I can imagine somebody in those disciples, one of the 12 or the other disciples there raised their hand and said, but, but Jesus, we got, we got you a couple of interviews with the local paper this week, and we're going to go visit the holy places around here, and we're going to ask you to touch the babies and, and kiss the ladies and and do all those things to try to get some votes to make sure that, that your, your agenda is met, our agenda is met. We've got things to do. We've got a prayer service and a healing service back in Capernaum that, that we're going to have to get, get some coverage on. But Jesus, as he always did, as he always does, had a better idea. And in a world that was witnessing political upheaval in a world that was looking around and seeing betrayal from the top of the, of the, uh, of the political ladder all the way down to the local uh, towns, in, the, in a world that was uh, occupied by a foreign people who didn't look like us or spoke like us, speak like us, Jesus tells his disciples, we need to slow down here. We need to slow down a so let me tell you about the real shape and form of my kingdom. Because if we're not careful, folks, people are going to start to think that I'm here to conduct business as usual when I'm really here to turn the world upside down, just like that snow globe. And then just to prove his point, Jesus begins to turn the world upside down. Instead of being a strong political leader who garners and gathers votes for office, Jesus blesses the meek and the poor in spirit and the people who look like they'll never accomplish anything. Blessed are you, he says. Instead of having power lunches with the movers and the shakers, Jesus blesses the destitute and the quiet folks who are on the fringes of life, huddled there, trying to do the right thing in their lives. Instead of promising liberation from Roman occupation, Jesus blesses those who mourn over things like Roman occupation. He looked out on the crowd that had gathered around him, and he saw the mothers with dying children. He saw other children who had been orphaned because of wars. He saw those injured from torture. He saw the sick and the feeble without adequate health care. He saw the longings of those who ached for a world that's fair and just. 
He saw the bickerings of a church, of a religious establishment, debating who's in and who's out of the kingdom. And he saw those who were involved in their local governments who were trying to do what's right only to get slammed by those who knew they were doing right and had the most money backers to prove it. He saw the pains of life. I used to think this sermon was written for me. That if I became those things, all those blessings are the meek and the mild, all those folks, if I became those things, that I would be blessed. But then I started asking myself a couple of questions. Am I meek and humble enough? Do I really want to work for peace between me and my neighbor and my community, my world, my country? Do I really want to be hungry and thirsty, even for righteousness' sake? Do I want to be sad and mournful all the time? Do I really want to be persecuted? That might lead to sacrifice. See, if I, if I wasn't doing those things, if I didn't wasn't trying to be blessed and, and to try as I was trying to do all those things, then I felt like that I wasn't on top of my Christian game. But then, as I read these scriptures over and over and over again during my life, I began to understand these blessings a little bit differently. They're a blueprint, but they're not for me. They are a blueprint for the body of Christ, all of us, the church, in whatever expression it finds itself. It's a blueprint for the church to express and a willingness to welcome, to open doors to those who had been formerly excluded, to stand up in the face of injustice, to serve the poor and the marginalized in our communities and in our world. Those are all things and more that you do well, Trinity. You do them well. And they mean something to this community. And they mean something to the folks who are coming in the doors looking for new opportunities to serve. And you welcomed new folks this morning. You do that well. There's a small church in Broadstairs, England. They run an after-school club, a coffee bar. They have parenting classes for single parents. They have a break-dancing workshop. I thought that was old. They have parents' meetings and toddlers' clubs. They have a theater group. They work in the community with the, those with special needs. They have two youth clubs. They offer a cafe and internet facilities and an IT class. And they're not any bigger than you. And all this came about because of an audit. Uh, back, this was back about 2006, 2006, 2006. Showed that these community needs weren't being met. 
Now, the church isn't called just to be an extension of state social services. But if the church is to be effective in living up to its calling, it seems to me that we have to look beyond ourselves into the community around us, which obviously you do that and do that well. And the more connections as we grow, as you grow, the more connections that you have, the more opportunities exist to witness to the community the love of God through Jesus Christ. Not just through words on Sunday morning, but through your actions as well. And you do a good job of that. There is something about being touched by grace that makes the attitudes and actions in these beatitudes that Jesus blesses a reality in our life. There is something about being touched by God's grace directly or indirectly through others that makes all of these blessings a reality in our life. If we open our eyes and our hearts to see them. But then as I mentioned this morning, we have to live into those graces and continue to do those things that we know to do. So that in those times when you find yourself poor in spirit, and when you find that you mourn over the power struggles and the ploys and the cheap words that we use every day, when you try your level best to live simply and humbly, when you look around at the inequities between the haves and the have-nots, and when you show mercy on those who have violated you and wronged you, when you find yourself aching in your heart instead of striking out over those who are different, when you honestly seek peace in a warring world, you are a blessed person indeed in a blessed community as well. And it's not like getting a star on your, beside your name, doing a good deed. You remember those charts in elementary school, and there were gold stars, and there were silver stars, and I forgot the other color that were there. But, you know, you made attendance, and you took out the trash, and you did what the teacher wanted to. You got your, got your stars, and three stars out of the week, you got an extra five minutes on the playground, whatever it was. It's not like that. It's far more than that, because it's a changed life you experience a changed life. And you're part of the reason that our world can be turned upside down. You're part of the reason that the status quo no longer has the power because the power resides in Jesus Christ and Him alone. Jesus changes everything. Our hearts, sure, our hearts, but also our hands and our feet and our minds and our eyes and the way that we see things and touch things and see and understand. In this mire of a world in which we live today, in this day of political rhetoric and opinion and where everybody's interests seem to be paramount and most important, when the smoke from the fires around the world obscures our view of the kingdom, 
The good news is that Jesus lifts our head above all of that so that we can see where we're going. And it is toward a new kingdom, a new way of living that may be 180 degrees opposite from the way that you might be living today. It's a life that is blessed. It is blessed by God and where we are called by God to be a blessing to others in the world. There must be something to this passage that's more than a sentimental, well, isn't that sweet? Because world changers like Gandhi and King and Tutu used these words to stand firm against oppression and hatred and violence. And through these words, they changed the prevailing sentiments of their day. For two of those, it took their life. It took sacrifice and ultimately their death, but also reconciliation And it took living like Jesus to become the beloved community. Thinking back on it, maybe these are for me. And maybe these words from Matthew's gospel are words that, like the song said, there are words to build a life upon, words to build a life on. Not the old life that I used to live where all the ducks had to be in a row and all the people had to be pleased, but a new life, a new life living in that upside-down world. That's a world that's exciting to me because the possibilities are endless. Jesus knew that. There was time then to turn it upside down. There's still time today. I'm a believer in that. There's still time for those who have ears to hear this morning. Hear. Amen.